Sports Ethos New York Knicks podcast, Andre Galliber. Two games since the last show, that Boston victory had Twitter popping, had Nick fans excited, some Nick fans saying this was this was low key like a championship. It was an exciting game, but you tripping, you little tripping a little bit. Tripping a little bit. Because you knew, you had to know that Boston, I mean, uh, Brooklyn was coming up. And Brooklyn, you can't take lightly. I don't care, KD, no KD. You can't take them lightly. And you saw Brooklyn was looking forward to that Nick game. They took that L to Detroit. You knew it was going to be hard times for the Knicks after they lost to Detroit, one of the worst teams in the league. You knew it. You knew it. I was talking to a friend of mine. He missed the Boston game, and he was uh, saying, oh, they're probably going to lose the Brooklyn if I watched that game and we laughed about it because we both kind of felt the same way. And when it comes to Brooklyn, unfortunately, this team really gets up for the Knicks. They know exactly how to attack the Knicks. On top of the fact that Nick Claxton, who I was talking trash about a couple months ago when he was on an all-star ballot above Randall and even Mitchell Robinson, I kind of regret that a little bit because Nick Claxton has, he's turned it up even even more than he was before. So it really looks funny in the light at this at this point. But my whole thing with Brooklyn is when you have good paint defending teams, the Knicks are going to struggle because they are a paint scoring team. And they're not incredibly athletic. They're not, aside from Brunson, they're not necessarily the most creative of finishers, even though RJ's gotten a little bit better in there. Um, the Knicks are too focused on tough shots in the paint to play teams that are good at defending the paint. Not every team is good at defending the paint, but when the Knicks play those guys, especially without Mitchell Robinson, who's who might be able to, I think he's a little bit stronger. He's not as athletic as Nick Claxton, but he's stronger than Nick Claxton. He might be able to get by knocking him around a little bit since most bigs around the league are not, you know, they're not really paint players. And Mitchell being a strong offensive rebounder and, and kind of uh, he can bully certain guys, smaller guys in the paint. He might have given Nick Claxton a little bit of trouble on the offensive boards, might have gotten him in some foul trouble, might have slowed down his aggressiveness. The Knicks had no answer for Kyrie in this game, though. At the end of the day, Kyrie, who wasn't really killing the Knicks for most of the game, in the fourth quarter turned it on and made some tough shots, and it was just – Unstoppable. I saw the Knicks try to trap him at one point, and he got the ball back and hit like a thirty-foot three. It once you once you let a guy get hot like that, his lights out. If the Knicks were more consistent throughout the game, then maybe it wouldn't have been as big of a deal, especially since they were able to keep him under wraps for the most part. But they they couldn't. They they weren't. And we, I talked about Randall on Twitter, who had an outstanding game in Boston, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. National TV games for Randall and RJ, I don't trust them. <laughs> in Boston, Randall, he bossed out. But against the Nets, O'Neal was able to slow him down and give him everything he wanted and then some. And Randall just didn't respond the way he needed to. And again, he can maybe bully O'Neal, but with Claxton behind him, it's just it's tough sledding. It's tough sledding. 
The Knicks were asleep defensively for a good bit in this game. There were some actions, off-the-ball actions, getting shooters open. The Knicks were late to recover. Unfortunately, listen, Sims is just not the rim protector he needs to be yet. A guy who can jump and damn near touch the top of the backboard. He just doesn't. He doesn't react very well sometimes to penetration uh, towards the basket. He just, he, he watches a lot. I'm, I'm confident, like, he's still a young, he's still a young NBA player. Age-wise, he's not necessarily young. He's, I mean, he is 22, but he's not younger than, much younger than Mitchell. I don't think he's younger than Mitchell and Hartenstein much at all, to be honest with you. But experience-wise, he's very young. And when guys drive to the basket, he doesn't always react. Sometimes he'll beat people to the spot. If he sees it coming, he'll, you know, he has very good feet, good lateral quickness. But if he has to run and, and defend the and defend the rim, he's not always there. He'll stay, he'll stick to his man and maybe box his man out and hope the primary defender makes a stop. But when you kind of you can't you can't really do that. You kinda if you're gonna be the center and you're around you have to at least show at the penetrator and, and see if uh, you can make him make the pass to your man or contest at the rim, contest late. You can't just let guys just drive to the front of the rim and, and go up 1v1 against the primary defender all the time. And Jericho is really kind of late a lot of times at the rim. He's, and that, you, you see it in his shot blocking numbers for a guy who's playing the minutes that he's playing, has the athleticism that he's playing with, he's not blocking many shots. And would you juxtapose that with maybe a guy like Kessler in in Utah, who in very short minutes has a ton of shot blocking numbers. That's just timing and anticipation, right? So Jericho just doesn't have that right now. And maybe he can develop it. I'm confident that he can. But you'd like to see him be a little bit more aggressive at the front of the rim, even now. Even if the time is going to be off a little bit, just just be there and make a show of it. Stop. Don't don't kind of be a cone. What you saw a lot throughout this game is the Knicks Achilles heel is always a three point shot. You know that it's going to be hit or miss at the end of the day. But you saw a lot of ball movement extra pass, kind of like in the Milwaukee game, in the Milwaukee game in the second half. And and I remember making note to myself that Milwaukee was one pass away from a wide open shot in the first half, and they weren't making that pass. And if they make that adjustment, the Knicks were in trouble. And that's kind of what happened. Against the Nets, the Nets, they instead of taking the okay shot, they were looking for the great shot. They kept moving the ball. When you do that and the Knicks are not on their game, and a lot of times, RJ and Randall are the ones who are responsible for that last rotation or that important rotation to take that last shot away. And you saw on several occasions, RJ and Randall specifically, just kind of anticipating the shot going up on one of those passes and that pass and that shot not going up and the next pass was made. And then they were not there to contest that shot because they were waiting for the shot and they were preparing themselves for the rebound. And RJ, I think that's that's the case for Randall a lot. He's anticipating the rebound and he's not getting out or he's getting out very late. RJ is just stuck in mud a lot on rotations, just honestly. Just stuck in mud a lot. Not hustling, not sprinting. Uh, there was a transition play where, where uh, I think it was Patty Mills was coming down court. IQ was back. All right. 
RJ was kind of trotting, and he was like half a step behind Patty Mills. Patty Mills wasn't racing down court. But IQ had to shift over to stop Patty Mills, and Patty Mills just kicked the ball out to the wing, and IQ couldn't get it, get there. Now, if RJ had sprinted to cut Patty Mills off, then IQ could have shaded towards that shooter, and that shot wouldn't have gone up. So that is that kind of lack of hustle that burns the Knicks sometimes. If the, the Knicks don't have a large margin for error. They they have to play hard and sharp all the time. And you've seen it. You've seen me say it a bunch of times. They have to outwork people. They have to out scheme people sometimes. They have to outwork, out hustle, out effort the other team. They don't have the luxury of you know hitting a thousand threes and getting super hot and blowing teams out just from their offensive execution. The Knicks don't. They're not that efficient offensively from the three point line to really knock people out like that. They have to, and because they give up so many three-point shots, they have to hustle. You have to hustle because some of those shots are going to go in regardless of the defense you play. If you give those shots up, some of them are going to go in. Sometimes they're going to miss in the first and the second quarter and go in the third and fourth. Sometimes they're going to miss at the beginning of the fourth and go down at the end of the fourth. That's why you have to cut corners, you have to, or you can't cut corners, I should say. You have to make those hustle plays. You have to cut Patty Mills off so he doesn't get the kick out three and IQ can shade closer to the shooter. You have to anticipate that the next pass is going to be made and get to that shooter instead of just standing in the paint and waiting for the rebound. These are the things that the Knicks didn't do in that game. They also, because their offense is so spotty and they're not consistently playing with pace and not consistently making the right pass, and I, there's just a lot of disjointedness to their offense, so there are ebbs and flows to it, game to game. If the other team is hot, then you get yourself down 20 like they did in this game against the Nets, and then you start playing with pace to get back into the game, and the Knicks got back into this game, and they had... You know, it's hard to say they had a, they had a shot if they could stop Kyrie, but they couldn't. But that pace that you play with, that desperation to score, the Knicks need to do that more often throughout the game. It gets some more people in rhythm. But when you play that slow down pace, and we, you know, you you kind of predetermine what shots you want to take every possession instead of just playing basketball and making reads and playing instinctively and getting everyone into the flow of the game. When you play like that, you're going to have ebbs and downs and ebbs and flows. The Knicks have some offensive ability on this team. They got six players that can... I shouldn't say six players because the centers don't count. So we're going to say, taking the centers out of it, we're going to say five players. They have Quickly, Grimes, Brunson, RJ, Randall. These guys can can score. They're not, you know, obviously Randall's playing well this year. And Brunson's playing well this year. They're not like lights out scorers. They're not SGA, you know, they're not Donovan Mitchell. No one's saying that. But they can score. All right. They can score against mismatches. They can make tough shots. If you move the ball around and find people in advantageous positions on the floor consistently, all five of those guys can get it going. They don't have to be burning hot but they can be in rhythm and take advantage of the opportunities that are given to them. When you don't move the ball and don't put people in rhythm, it's going to be struggle time. It's going to be too many times in the game where you don't know where your shots are coming from and you end up forcing shots. And you saw in that third 
fourth quarter-ish when the Knicks started coming back. The ball was moving around. They were finding people. They were finding people. That's the type of offense you need to have throughout the game. You got to play with that same desperation on offense that you need to play with on defense, and they didn't do that on either end in this game. And the Nets did. When teams play the Knicks and they realize, hey, we have size advantages when we shoot. If they come closing out, quickly comes closing out, just shoot. If Brunson comes closing out, just shoot. is going to be late on his closeout. Closeouts. Randall is going to be lazy on his closeout sometimes. Just shoot. Don't hesitate. McBride is going to come out hot and heavy on the closeout, but if you if you get that shot up, you're going to shoot over him. That's what Dinwiddie did in that Dallas game. People said it was bad defense. He was all over him. It didn't make a difference because he was too small. So the Knicks just have to... If the Knicks score consistently, these teams will die on the vine sometimes because they have to take tough shots because the Knicks are playing good defense most times. Not great defense all the time, clearly. But most times, they're playing good defense, better than the rest of the league. So if you're making them take tough shots, they'll die on the vine eventually if you're consistent offensively. And I understand that other team gets paid too. They're playing good defense too. But the Knicks don't have good processes on offense. All right? Processes on offense. They just don't. And because of that, those ups and downs is what? That's why the wins and losses are so up and down. It's because they're not consistently finding good shots. A lot of teams around the league, they take bad shots. But they're shots that are in rhythm for them. I say a lot of the good teams, the playoff teams, they, they take the shots that are in rhythm for them. It's a make or miss, but it's in rhythm for them. They're getting the shots that they normally take and they want to take. The Knicks don't have that kind of consistency on their offense. Outside of Brunson creating his own shot or Randall creating his own shot or RJ taking advantage of a mismatch, as a team, as a cohesive unit, they do not create opportunities for each other consistently. So those ups and downs, they manifest themselves into ups and downs in a win-loss column. And you have a game where you're, you you beat Boston and have this outstanding win, and then you go to New Jersey without KD and you lose to this team because they're confident that they can get good shots against you, and they're confident that they can keep you from getting good shots. That's the downside of having having other teams be so familiar with what you do. So you're going about this game all methodically, like you're going to get these great shots playing with this slow pace and getting the ball in the spots you want to get it in. But the team, at the end of the day, is just a forced shot. (laughs) At the end of the day, a lot of times, it's 1v1, and you're either going to beat the guy or you're not. And when Randall's having an outstanding game like he did in Boston, or Brunson's having an outstanding game like he did, then you can win games. That's why the Knicks have the wins that they have. But without having a functional ball movement-centric offense, the way the Knicks played to get back in this game, where they were playing with pace and enthusiasm to score, without taking possessions for granted. And you say, it was exciting to see the Knicks come back in that game. You kind of had a feeling, I always have a feeling the Knicks are going to come back, the way they've played all, all year. Okay. But the ball movement and the urgency that they play with on offense, that's what the team needs to play with all the time. All the time. And they don't do it. You saw a pass from Randall from, like, the top of the key. 
But at the top of the key, I think he's more like in a circle or in a free throw line around a nail. To Jericho Sims under the basket. That's a pass the Knicks never make. There are a lot of actions that the Knicks go through with a center. He kind of waltzes through the lane. Wide open for a half a second. Maybe a tough pass. Maybe a misdirection. A look away is needed. And the Knicks never make the pass. They never make it. They only make those passes when they're in desperation mode to score. Then you start seeing them force the ball into a guy like Jericho Sims where he can power dribble and go up. That's the only time you see those passes. Sometimes There are drop-off passes, of course, at the rim, Sometimes not nearly as often as maybe other teams do to us or do to the Knicks. But you will see drives, penetration, drop-off pass to Jericho Sims once every two games. What you don't see is Jericho being wide open under the basket and someone looking away or pass faking in another direction to create a passing lane, a better passing lane, to get him the ball for a dunk. You don't see that very often at all. But you saw that down the stretch of this game when the Knicks started coming back, cutting it within three, cutting it to three. You saw a pass like that from Randall. That pass is there often, especially with all the double double teams that Randall gets. That pass is there a lot. But they make it when they're in desperation mode. They need to be that that mode all game. And if they do that, they're very hard to guard. They're very hard to guard. They got four guys on the floor that can score in a myriad of ways. Like I said, they're not high-end scorers like Donovan Mitchell or, you know, they're not doing that. But you can't you can't guard any of those guys 1v1 with the average NBA player. Those guys will find a way to score. If you are rotating defensively, Quentin Grimes is going to burn you. If you are late, he will shoot it. If you are early, he will drive it. Randall, you know what Randall could do. RJ, even against tough defenders, RJ can run cold sometimes like he did in Boston, but he finds a way to get into the middle of the paint, get his little shot up, two feet in the paint, get his little shot up. He has figured out he's not going to out-quick everybody. And when Quickly's in the game, he is found. We talked about Quickly. If you've been listening to this show, you know, beginning of the season, we talked about Quickly's floor game being being immaculate and being the perfect player for the Knicks, being efficient when he's on the floor. But his own offense was a struggle. That's not the case anymore. He has found his own offense. Is This is not in the last game or so. This has been for like 20 games now. He has found his own offense. He knows where to get his shots from. He's playing with confidence. This is a guy that you can't sleep on when he's on the floor. It's easier to guard quickly when he's on the floor by himself without other players, without even an RJ or a Brunson. It's easier to zero in on what he's doing. But when he's playing off the ball, which is something I've said all year long, he is much more effective when he is not the primary or the only primary ball handler on the floor. He will burn you. Just like just like Grimes is showing signs of doing, he will burn you on on rotating defensively or playing off of him or not not zeroing in on his on screen his on ball screens because there are other weapons on the floor. He will burn you. He will burn you, and he's playing so well. He's playing so well. He kept RJ on the bench deep into well, you know, a lot of crunch time. It seems like. Thibodeau is in this place where he's kind of splitting up crunch time with Quickly and RJ. It's hard to take Quickly off the floor. It really is the way he plays defense, especially when you're replacing him with a guy 
who a lot of times see Julius, he will be asleep for stretches of the game defensively, but then he will turn it on when the Knicks need it sometimes. RJ is like, eh, it's, it's almost like RJ doesn't, doesn't have another defensive gear. Randall has another defensive gear, and it's frustrating to see him not be in that gear much more through the game. I understand he has a heavy offensive load. I'm not getting into all of that, but it's frustrating to see him not be in that gear throughout the entire game. RJ, I don't know if he has another gear. And that's the problem. Quickly is too good for this team on both sides of the floor to have him on the bench. So it's we talked about that being tricky a couple of weeks ago. What are the Knicks going to do when they, when they need to win at the end of the game? Who's going to sit and who's not? At the end of the day, it's a loss you wish the Knicks didn't, didn't take. It's a loss that the Knicks, they came back in the game. Honestly, you're frustrated as a Knicks fan seeing the Knicks have lost nine straight in a row to Boston at this point. Boston kind of owns the Knicks at this very moment, even if the fan base is still minuscule. <laughs> at least they fill their own arena at this point with Brooklyn fans. It's not as many Knicks fans. There are not as many Knicks fans in, in the Barclays Arena right now when the Nets and Knicks play. But this is a loss you, you wish the Knicks. It, it was almost, I told, I was telling people, I don't think the Knicks are going to come out flat in this game. But they kind of they kind of did. I don't know if it was really flat as much as it was the Nets being super hot. And when teams come out super hot, it's hard to keep up. And Boston did that to the Knicks too. And the Knicks got back into that game fairly quickly with the play of the second unit. Led by quickly in that second quarter of that Boston game. But sometimes teams come out knowing they're going to get open threes and they're very aggressive shooting them. And you saw that against the Wizards too. They came out very aggressive offensively with their ball movement. If you just keep moving the ball, you'll get open shots. And I, the, the disease, you can talk about the symptoms, talking about the defensive rotations, but the disease for the Knicks is that, is that they overhelp. They help when they shouldn't help. Just because a guy gets a step in the, in the paint, especially when you have a center who doesn't shoot. As soon as they get a step in the paint, you don't need to sink in as hard as they do from the perimeter. Teams know all they got to do is get a step in the paint and then you spray it out and you may not get the first shot, you may not get the second, but you're definitely going to get the third. And when teams know that, and that's what I mean about teams being familiar with them, when they know that, they come out with a confidence shooting that ball. And that's the last thing you want as a defense is for the offense to be comfortable and confident because then there's not much you can do. Even when you play good defense, they're still going to hit the shot. You saw a tough shot when the Knicks cut it to three. You saw a tough shot from Steph, from uh, Seth Curry with quickly all over him. But quickly was on the wrong side of him. He was on his left side and he's a right-handed shooter, but he was all over him. Seth did not hesitate to put that shot up and hit that because quickly is just not that big. So the Knicks' size on the perimeter hurts them. The confidence that these guys are going to get good shots. You know you're going to get good shots from the perimeter, so you don't hesitate to shoot them. All that stuff hurts the Knicks. But at the end of the day, even a great three-point shooting team is typically not going to shoot a percentage much higher than the 30s. So if you rebound and you're consistent 
on your end of the floor, and the Knicks are a heavy paint scoring team, if you're consistent in your shots and getting good shots and knocking them down, and I'm not just talking threes, if you're consistent in getting good shots and every time producing good shots, you will outlast teams. And that's what that's how the Knicks have gotten wins. They outlast teams. But these games are close at the end because they're not consistent getting good shots. Their death, their process at the end of the game is usually terrible. So they give up leads even if they have been just consistent enough to build a league. They start getting inconsistent towards the end of the game. If they get a process of for finding good shots more consistently, they will be a better team. They will be a better team. They'll be a better team at the end of the game. They'll be a better team against teams like Brooklyn and, and the Wizards and the Hawks and Toronto. Toronto less so because they're length, whatever. I'm not getting into it. They'll be more consistent against those teams if they played the way they played when they were trying to come back from being 20 down. Play like that all the time. Be that aggressive. Be that sharp. Be that decisive offensively. They're not, and they're not going to. So, Prepare to be frustrated. But that was a great victory in Boston. You could, at the end of the day, talk about the the Knicks basically giving a win back because that was a that, that Boston victory was a win that they probably should not have gotten. If you're just looking at the schedule, I'm not talking about how the game played out. Looking at the schedule, that's not a win that you assume that they have a chance of getting and then they get it. But a Boston... I'm um, sorry, a Brooklyn team without KD is a win that you would assume that they can, even though even though uh, Brooklyn has owned the Knicks, you would expect the Knicks to be able to pull a game out against Brooklyn. Like that's a, that's a win that you would hope that they'd be able to get if they were a better, more consistent team showing good signs that they were getting better, especially off that Boston game. But you can never really count on that kind of stuff. But if you have a Boston and the Brooklyn game on the schedule, you're looking at it and you're saying, well, maybe we lose to Boston, but we can beat Brooklyn. Well, they did the opposite. <laughs> they did the opposite. But that Boston game was an exciting game. They they fought off Boston's hot start. Boston's a good defensive team. I know Boston is struggling a tiny bit right now. I don't want to hear about Marcus Smart like not playing. That's just part of life. The Knicks got missing people, too. But that was such an exciting game. Nick fans were so excited after that. The the post game show for Nick Fan TV with uh, CP the franchise they went on for a couple hours, caller after caller, talking about that game. And most Nick fans were excited about it. Of course, you have the Nick fans that are like, we don't, I don't care, we should tank. You know, you always have those stupid fans. But that was an excellent, excellent game for the Knicks and. They almost gave it away at the end. They almost gave it away at the end. The offense for the Knicks at the end of that game, for the most part, was really terrible. And Brunson takes a lot of heat for that. If the Knicks want to slow down and play iso ball at the end of the game, that's okay. But you cannot do it and take that long to get into your get into your attack. You can't do it. You can't take that long to get into your attack. 
the Knicks will wait to the very end of the shot clock for possession after possession, and it cost them. It cost them. Luckily, it didn't cost them the whole game, but it cost them that lead. I'm perfectly fine with Brunson having the ball at the end of the game, but what you cannot have is him dribbling out the clock like that. It just looks bad. It feels bad as a teammate. You're not the only person in the world. You didn't see Michael Jordan do all of that. Michael Jordan is the greatest in the game player I've ever seen. He didn't hold the ball for the whole shot clock. Move the ball around, get some movement, and then get the ball back. Get the ball back and then attack. Just having the defense moving and having them on skates and not just gearing up for what you're trying to do is going to help you be more efficient. And on top of that, by doing that, you can get the ball and be ready to attack with seven, eight seconds on the shot clock instead of three seconds or five seconds on the shot clock. You try to attack and you get stopped and then you got to move the ball and now it's too late for a shot. You get that ball and attack around eight, seven seconds. Now, if they collapse on you, you kick, you got time for two passes even. So that was just terrible execution. You saw Thibodeau at the end of the game, end of the, in the post-game press conference talk about how they can't take too, that long on the offense. But he's on the floor right there. Like, you're, tell, you're telling the media, but why didn't you tell him? He can hear you. We can, we can hear Thibodeau at home sometimes, at least when he's playing in the garden. We can hear him at home. You don't tell him, you're not telling Brenton to speed it up, get a shot up. With five, with uh, you know, make your attack with eight seconds on the shot clock instead of waiting five seconds on the shot clock. Get the ball to Randall with ten seconds on the shot clock because you know they might double team. Let's go. They started double teaming them late. They started trapping Brunson and Randall late, and you know Randall doesn't get the ball out of his hands very quickly. So that was perfect. That was perfect for them. So you yeah, that. You want to see now, now, with that said, the Knicks did produce a couple open shots for Quentin Grimes down the stretch, and he just didn't knock him down. If he did, he would have put the game away. So there was some good and there was some bad. When you miss good shots, sometimes people forget the process that you went through to get the good shot, and they just remember the bad shots and the bad process, right? There were some good possessions that produced good shots that didn't go down. But there were too many bad possessions when the Knicks were trying to hold on to that lead. R.J. Barrett, the lights were too bright for him, I think. National television, nationally televised game, R.J. Barrett was doing too much early in the game. He looked, he was really throwing up all over himself in that game early on. He was doing all of the things that most of the national critics have of him, forcing shots of the paint, not finishing, etc. But he was there at the end. That's one thing you can say about R.J. Barrett. He ain't never scared. He got that shot at the end. He got that that corner three right in front of Boston's bench. Mwah! Chef's kiss on that shot, boy. Woo-wee! That was a big one. And he made his free throws. I think R.J. Barrett has probably been more consistent down the stretch at the free throw line than Brunson. The percentages might not reflect that because I think he did have a couple misses here and there throughout the season, but he went up there and he was just ballsy about those free throws. Randall hit some big free throws down the stretch too. I believe Brunson did as well. Just a big win. It's good to see the Knicks step up and play well against these teams that are better than them and you assume 
things are not going to go well for them. And then they show up and they play well. Of course, when they play these these worst teams. And you know what? Randall said it. Randall said it. We're good enough to be anyone in the league. But we can lose anyone in the league too. And at least he has that kind of self-awareness. I just wish he understood why that was the case. A lot of it falls on him. Not all of it. Not all of it. Not all of it. I would say uh, because he's in the game a lot and he's played well offensively, but the ebbs and flows in his offensive process hurt the team. I don't think the ebbs and flows in Brunson's process hurt the team quite as much. But when Brunson is ball hogging, which he does do sometimes, it, it can have a detrimental effect on the rhythm of the offense. But it, it doesn't hurt the team nearly as much as people think it does because Brunson has played well and he shoots efficiently. So, yes, he doesn't. He prevents guys from getting in rhythm sometimes, and it can look bad when he's not quite shooting a, a super high percentage at the end of the day, or they're not quite getting good shots when he's ball hogging. And I'm not talking about the end of the game. I'm talking about throughout the game. But at the end of the day, the Knicks are typically playing decently with his ball hogging. <laughs> Un- unlike Randall where they don't necessarily play well when he's ball hogging. And unlike RJ, who's not necessarily a ball hog, but he can be selfish with his drives and not spraying the ball out and not enforcing shots up at the front of the rim. But the Knicks with Randall, when he doesn't play well offensively and he doesn't make good decisions, he doesn't get the ball out of his hands on the double team, he takes bad shots, he doesn't knock them down. His usage rate is so high, it really drags the Knicks down. Brunson's usage rate is really high, but it, you don't have as you don't have negative results as often with Brunson as you do with with Randall. But there are some long term, in terms of the game, there are some long term detrimental effects to Brunson not moving the ball because guys like Quentin Grimes don't get into the game. Guys like R.J. Barrett maybe don't get into the game. Yeah, so that's there are some negatives there too. But R.J. Barrett being stuck in mud defensively hurts the team more than anything else. More than anything else, because offensively he's played much better the last 25 games or so. But defensively, you cannot be such a hole defensively. And Randall, he misses rotations and he doesn't make, he doesn't contest when he needs to contest. Like, but like I said earlier, he will turn it on. I don't know if there's a turn on for R.J. And I don't know if he realizes it. And if he doesn't, again, that falls on the coaching staff. Like, what are you doing? This is what you need to do. So I, you really need to see RJ turn that on. You really need to see him flip that switch defensively and just really get a little bit more, you know, pepping his step, moving the ball, moving moving his body to the ball defensively. You got to see it. It's just too much laziness. I saw we had a big rebound against the Nets. You haven't seen that rebound in a long time. You really haven't. Him fighting for a rebound, taking contact, really just having that hustle in him. He needs more of that. Once he makes that turn, the Knicks become more consistent. Just they, if they do nothing else, they become more consistent because he has the size that McBride doesn't have, even Grimes doesn't have, and, of course, quickly doesn't have. So if he can 
rotate to some of these shooters and really get in their face. And he did that last night against against Kyrie, and Kyrie still burned him because he's Kyrie, who just made some big shots in that game that nobody's going to do anything about. But just in general, having RJ size defensively can help you if he's actually in good position, and he's not always. Anyway, the Knicks got the Lakers coming up next. I can tell you, LeBron James and AD took their next game off to rest up for the Knicks game. So, not looking good. (laughs) Not looking good. Rest is important. That's why this all-star conversation needs to be had as well. Because a lot of these guys that are competing with Randall for an all-star spot and Brunson... They rest. They don't play a lot of games. Jimmy Butler does not play a lot of games. Randall's playing every game. If you take off a game a week, then of course you're going to be fresh as a daisy when you finally get in the game. This all-star thing is really driving me nuts. I'm seeing all these lists online, and I'm like, hold on. Siakam is an all-star, but not Randall? How? And make that case. What, how, Siakam shoots close to 48% from the field, Randall's at 46%. But Siakam shoots like 30% from three, and Randall's shooting 36%. So what are you talking about? He averages a couple more, he averages more assists, but Randall averages more rebounds. And Randall's on a better team. How is that even a thing? Siakam is on almost every single list that I see, and Randall's not on it. What are you doing? What are you doing? DeMar DeRozan is on almost every single list that I see, and Randall's not on it. Chicago's trash. DeMar's stats aren't any better than Julius Randall's. What's going on here? Are you people paying attention? Huh? Are you paying attention? I saw Shaq, Kenny, and Charles Barkley's list. They were more accurate than some of these writers who are coming out with these lists. And those guys don't even watch the NBA half the time. At least they had Randall and Brunson on most of their lists or close to it. Randall was on every one of their lists, I'm pretty sure. You got these NBA experts who don't have Randall on their list, but they have Siakam and DeMar DeRozan. What are you doing? What are you doing? Make that case. I'd argue in a guy like Butler. Butler has very good stats. He doesn't shoot three three very well, but he has good stats. Okay, you could probably compare Butler's stats with Siakam's stats. Actually, I think Butler, you know, he's he's got more steals per game. But I get Jimmy Butler being an all-star. Okay, Miami's higher in the standings, etc. But Jimmy Butler has not played many games. Randall has played 50 games. Jimmy Butler's played like 30-something. When you are playing 30-something games, you don't want to be an NBA all-star. You want to sit out games. And if you sit out games, you should not be playing in the all-star game Juxtaposed with someone who played 50 games, hasn't missed a game all year, and is in the same place in the standings. Justin Termini, I sent him some tweets because I was listening to his show on NBA radio, and he was talking about how a, a team that's not even a six seed, a team that's lower than a six seed, shouldn't have two all stars. I said, hold on, the Knicks were a six seed for, for about two weeks, and for a week or so, they've been the seventh seed. All of a sudden, they don't get two All-Stars? This has been 50 games played. And because they're not the sixth seed right now, because they're one game behind, they don't get two All-Stars? What kind of nonsense is that? So you're going to give Miami two All-Stars, even though one of their All-Stars hasn't played 20 games in a season? What are we doing? 
What kind of what kind of demarcation is that? I'm not the seventh seed doesn't get two all stars, but the sixth seed there's one game behind. It wouldn't be. It's not about the seeding. It's about how many games you are behind. You get hung up on seeding. That's how you know people are not really processing what they're saying. Don't get hung up on the seeding and not pay attention to the records. If a team is two, three, uh, the Knicks are. At the time he said this, the Knicks were like three games behind Cleveland, four games behind Cleveland. You're talking about four games in the loss column, three games in the loss column, or one game in the loss column from the sixth seed at the time. What are you talking about? You don't get that guy two all. You don't get that team two all stars. What kind of nonsense reason is that? And then don't be the same person to put DeMar DeRozan on the all-star team and Siakam on the all-star team because you don't want to get two all-stars to a team that's better than theirs. Come, listen. And anytime you talk about Tyrese Halliburton, the Wally Zerbiak stuff comes up. It comes up. It's almost like he's getting sympathy votes to a, to a degree. Now, let me argue. Let me say something. Halliburton is an all-star caliber player. I just don't want what Wally Zerbiak said to cloud the all-star discussion, especially when Halliburton is being juxtaposed juxtaposed with Brunson in a lot of these arguments, right? Halliburton is an all-star caliber player and is having a season worthy of the all-star game. My problem is people are putting Halliburton high on the list of deserving all-stars like he is beyond reproach. Outside of the fan voting system that we have for the All-Star game, I've seen experts put Halliburton as a starter on their All-Star ballot. And Brunson doesn't make the team. That doesn't make sense. The Pacers were a good team all year. I'm not going to be a hypocrite just because they're falling they fell a little bit in the sandings after Halliburton got hurt. I'm not going to hold that against the Pacers. They were a good team all year. They are deserving of having an all-star, okay? Halliburton has had an outstanding season. He has missed a bunch of games at this point. He's missed a bunch of games. You're putting a guy that can't even play right now, not just putting him on the all-star team, you're saying he's so far on the all-star team that he's above reproach, that he doesn't even have a competitor for the spot. What? When he was, he got hurt in the Nick game. At the time of the, and I hate to even bring it up again, at the time of the Wally Zerbiak controversy, the Knicks had just beaten Indiana and Brunson outplayed him. And Brunson outplayed him. It was, it was, the comments came after the Knicks played the Pacers in Indiana and Brunson outplayed him by a large margin. Then the Pacers came to New York. Halliburton got hurt in the middle of a Pacer comeback after the Knicks were up by 20. He got hurt in the middle of that comeback. Brunson has outplayed Halliburton when they played each other. Brunson's numbers are off the charts. You see he's third in the league in field goals and field goal percentages in the clutch. His, field, his shooting percentages are off the charts, just like just like Halliburton's. Halliburton averages more assists. Halliburton, listen, I said he's right there. They're there. And if you think Halliburton is better than Brunson, you can have that too. 
If you think Halliburton has had a better season than Brunson, you can have that too. But it's not so much better that he should be high on the list with a solidified spot on the All-Star team and Brunson's off the team. They're right there next to each other. Right there. It's comical to say otherwise. Comical to say otherwise. And it's ridiculous that Brunson is is not making many of these lists while Halliburton is sitting there, sitting high, high. Oh, Halliburton's a starter. What? And the other guy, listen, you can't argue with Trey Young now because the Hawks have played better. When the Hawks were terrible and Trey Young was shooting terrible all year, he had no business on that all-star team. And he still might not make it, frankly. You saw where the players voted him, right? If you look at the player vote breakdown, Trey Young was was the last amongst the guards. His peers don't like him. It doesn't surprise me at all. I've never liked him. Doesn't mean he's not good. Doesn't mean he hasn't, he's not great at certain things. It's just I'm not going to keep going on and on about Trey Young, but there's folks online talking about how's Trey Young not on the All-Star team. How's Trey Young not making many many of these people's All Star list? It's because Trey Young is a terrible basketball player. Sometimes just because he can score points doesn't mean he's playing well. That's what you people don't understand. Just because you're scoring points doesn't mean you're you're playing well. That was what was true for Randall in the beginning of the season. He was scoring points, but he wasn't playing well. Randall's only average. Well, actually, in the last month or so, he's 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 bumped that that scoring up, but. Randall was at about 24, 25 points per game for most of the year. There was just a point where his 24, 25 points wasn't worth the squeeze because of all the other things he wasn't doing. And this is where Trey Young is. Way worse than Randall, by the way, because his shooting percentages are terrible. He's not guarding anyone. He he would hog the ball, turnovers, bad shots, etc. But now that the Hawks have played better, and they've gotten there, they've righted the ship, it's hard to look at someone averaging that many points per game and that many assists and say that he doesn't deserve to be an all-star. It's harder, I should say. But when the Hawks were trash, he had no business on that team. But Trey Young is on those awesome, on way more all-star lists than Jalen Brunson. And that should not be the case. Because Jalen Brunson has not made many lists at all. And people are just grandfathering Trey Young onto the All-Star team shooting 41% from the field and 31% from three and just giving it to him over a guy just because he's scoring a lot of points on an average team over a guy as efficient as Jalen Brunson was. But listen, if Trey Young makes the team over Jalen Brunson, I'll kick and scream a little bit, but I get it. But Halliburton just being given it, just giving it to him, and, and there's no conversation about Brunson. And again, when they come out with these, with with the final roster, all of this conversation is going to be for nothing because it's not up to the media; it's up to the coaches. It's just annoying to see how many so-called NBA experts can leave Jalen Brunson off the All Star team and then list and and then list Halliburton as a starter. That's it. Doesn't make sense. This show is run over. The next show, if I can get it in before the Lakers loss, is going to be a trade show. We're coming up against it. These trades are about to pop off. Some news saying 
that Cam Reddish is definitely going. I don't think he's going to the Bucks. I'm seeing stories that Jay Crowder has gotten permission to talk to the Bucks. So that looks like that's going to be a done deal. Trade day lines are exciting. Hey, listen, the Knicks, Knicks might have a chance to get an OG. I'm not sure if I love that deal, but we'll talk about it. Getting Cam Reddish off the roster. Maybe Hartenstein gets traded. Of course, Hartenstein might get traded after he starts playing much, much better and becoming a much more valuable asset on the team. Listen, it's this is going to be interesting. The Knicks have assets to trade. They have people that players want. They have an opportunity to add someone to the rotation, assuming that, that Tibbs is going to expand the rotation. He should, especially if they get a wing defender. They definitely should. I think the Knicks would immediately become better if they got a wing defender who could hit threes and hopefully attack closeouts. But we'll we'll stay on it. I'm going to gather these reports and these rumors, and we're going to get into it in this next show. Don't forget, check out sportsethos.com. Follow at sportsethos on Twitter. Follow ethos at ethosnicks. Until next time. <laughs>